leaves were swirling across the grass. Oh, man, that grass. It had that, that fall smell about it, you know? It was, it was lush and green. It had rained pretty hard a couple days earlier, and, and it, but it, was, it had that kind of false spring before it goes dormant for the winter, and that grass just had that, that great fall grass smell. And I could smell it because someone had pounded my face really hard into the ground. <sighs> I was at the bottom of a dog pile. It was a Thursday afternoon scrimmage before our Saturday morning game at the YMCA Junior Football League, and I could smell the grass. I remember that smell. Now, time has made the memory a fond one, but the experience was not. I distinctly remember lying at the bottom of that dog pile, a chunk of grass and dirt lodged in my face mask. I wormed my way to the edge of the pile and reached out and put my hands on the grass, and two things happened almost simultaneously. One is that the, the, the person with the ball, I couldn't see because grass, um, maybe a running back, came, came running by wearing non-regulation cleats and stepped on my hand. Now, the YMCA had dictated that we had to wear soft rubber cleats. I think he was wearing his hard rubber baseball cleats. And it felt like that thing went all the way through my hand into the grass. And at the same, so I'm like, as I lifted my head to scream in pain, I'm assuming the linebacker chasing the guy with the ball came by, and the, the, the top edge of his knee pad grabbed the bottom of my face mask and about ripped my head clean off. It's a fun sport. <laughs> and I decided right then and there at the bottom of that dog pile, I think this is my last season playing football. I believe I'm going to retire uh, and pick up a safer sport like fencing. Um, it's true. So, hey, uh, thank you for being here today. If you're new here at Chapel Rock, I, thank you so much for coming. I'd love to meet you when we're done. I'll be down front. Please come down and say hi. For those of you joining us online, we appreciate uh, you logging in today. If, if you would, when we're all done, please let us know that you're watching and uh, just fill out that online connection card. If you haven't done yours uh, here in the room, please do that this morning. Also, just lay that in the seat uh, next to you. Um, we want to add a couple things to your prayer list today and then take a moment to pray for them. Uh, many of you will know Mike Todd. Uh, he went to the ER at IUS late last night and they transferred him, uh, to, was supposed to, to St. V's. I haven't heard back from him yet, but with some congestive heart failure, he's okay and doing better, but just pray for Mike, okay? And then we also need to pray for a different Mike uh, and his wife, Carrie. Uh, some of you may or may not know Mike and Carrie Belcher were expecting. Uh, she had some difficulties um, and little Vivian Rose uh, was born um, a Friday night at about 6 o'clock and went to the arms of her God at about 1 o'clock um, Saturday morning. Um, Carrie, uh, the, she was only about 25 weeks and 5 days gestation. Baby came prematurely, labored to breathe all night long, and then at about 1 o'clock uh, Saturday morning, the baby just stopped breathing. And um, so they are, they are hurting uh, bad right now. Um, right now, what they're asking for from their church family is prayer and privacy. They just need some time. This really stings. Um, we're going to keep you posted as, as a church family how we can love them, okay? So, but right now, they just really kind of want some time. Um, for those of you who've lost a child, um, 
you, you know the pain in their hearts right now. So I want to take a moment and pray uh, for one Mike, that God would be restoring uh, his heart, and for Mike and Carrie, um, and little Audrey and their, their family, uh, just to spend a time praying for them. Can we do that this morning? God, thank you for the privilege we have of coming to you before your throne of grace in boldness uh, and making bold requests of you because you are a mighty God. Uh, we pray for Mike Todd, Lord. We pray that you would uh, be at work healing his heart. Um, he's got a lot left he wants to do here in this life. And so um, we just ask for your uh, healing hand on him. We also ask, Lord, for healing for Mike and Carrie. Um, we pray, God, that you would just wrap them in your arms, just give them your comfort, um, give them the peace that passes all understanding. There's no reason at all, God, that they should have peace in the midst of this tragedy, and yet you promise that for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that for them. We pray that you would do that. We pray, God, that um, especially for little Audrey, as she was looking forward to having a little sister, um, that you would help her little heart process this um, and that Carrie's body could recover uh, quickly um, from, from this, uh, this, all that she's had to go through. Um, just guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. We started a new sermon series last Sunday called Handoff. Uh, kind of a football-themed series. We're looking at different elements of the Christian faith and how we can leverage those to, to pass our faith on to other people, to, to, to hand it off to somebody else. Uh, and when we do those things well, it really does help us pass on our faith, not only to a new generation like Fred talked about last week, but even people in our own demographic, you know. Uh, it helps us do that. Now, before we go any further... I want to take a moment and dispel a nasty rumor about me that's been floating around this church. And the rumor is that I don't know anything about sports. <laughs> that's not true. I, I played sports. I know stuff about sports. All right? In fact, I would generally much rather play them than watch them, which is why some of you think I don't know anything about sports. Because I don't watch. I mean, if I was going to sit down and watch TV, I'm going to watch a home improvement show or put on a you know, superhero movie or something. I would much rather play than watch. So if you ask me, Casey, do you want to watch football or play football? My only question is going to be tackle, touch, or flag. Because it makes a difference on which position I want to play. I don't like getting hit. You know this now. So, I mean, if we're playing touch, you know, whatever, I don't care. But if we're playing tackle, I want to be linebacker. I will do the hitting, thank you very much. I don't want to play, you know, a position where I'm going to get pounded, no thanks, you know. So if you've ever thought, our preacher doesn't know anything about sports, you're wrong. I do. I forgive you for thinking that. That's okay. I... And I have forgiven the guys who hurt me playing YMC football, mostly because I don't know who they are, you know grass, um, but also because that's just the price you pay to play the game, right? I, I, it's not terribly hard to forgive someone who hurt you if you don't know who they are, complete stranger, okay, whatever, you know, especially if they didn't do it without any malice or if, hey, we're just playing the game, that's, what, that's the way it goes, but what happens when the person who hurts you is someone who's known to you? What happens when the person who hurts you is a close friend? Maybe a family member. Someone you used to trust. How do you forgive 
then? Do you realize what's at stake if you choose not to forgive? And do you have any idea what could be accomplished if you do choose to forgive them? If you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, I want you to open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. In this series, we're talking about how to hand off our faith, how to transfer it to other people so that they become Christians. And my point this morning is that one of the best ways to do that is to practice forgiveness. Here's, here's what I want you to, to get today. If you, if you can learn to really forgive people when they hurt you, you will be so much more successful in handing off your faith. If you can learn to forgive people when they hurt you, you're going to be so much more successful in, in handing off your faith. I really want you to wrap your heads around that. Now, we're going to read about a time today in the life of the Apostle Paul when he showed forgiveness to someone who hurt him. You're in pretty bad. We'll get more into that in a little bit, okay? But in order for me to, to get this across to you, for you to understand this, I, I, I want to give you some background, kind of in the form of a timeline, because I think it will help you get your sense around the, the text that we're going to read today, okay? So let me give you this timeline. First of all, somewhere around 50 AD, Paul makes his first trip to Corinth, and he plants the church. You can read about that in Acts 18, first 11 verses, Okay. He stays there about a year and a half. So somewhere in mid-50 A.D. he shows up. He leaves somewhere in 52 A.D., okay? Then in early 55 A.D., Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, but we don't have that letter. Remember, it's in 1 Corinthians, and he says, in my former letter, this is 1 Corinthians, we don't know what that is. That's been lost to history. It never got saved. You know, uh, you know, it never got copied. We don't know. We don't know. Paul wrote him this letter um, after having planted the church. It's kind of, I think it was just kind of a checkup letter, right? He's just checking up on him. Then somewhere in mid-55 mid AD, Paul gets this report from some Corinthian church members. He's in Ephesus. He had a lengthy ministry in Ephesus. About three years he was there. So he's not far away. And some people travel from Corinth to Ephesus. Corinth is in Greece. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. They travel and they tell him about some of the problems that are going on in the church. And that church had some problems, man. I mean, it, go back and read 1 Corinthians 5. There are children present. I'm not going to get into it. It's bad. It's bad. He gets this report, and so he begins to write the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, okay? Then while he's writing it, he gets a letter from the Corinthian church with some questions in there. And so he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. So he gets a report about things, things are bad, and then he gets a letter from them with some questions. And so the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians is kind of twofold. It's him responding to the problems he heard about and then answering their questions uh, later in the letter. Then in late 55 AD, Paul sends the completed letter of 1 Corinthians to them. In early 56 AD, Paul sends another what we call lost letter to the Corinthian church. He, he calls it, in 2 Corinthians, he calls it a letter of tears. We don't have this one either. But he's, he's, again, just dealing with some of the fallout. There's somebody in the church who began to, who began to demean uh, the apostleship of Paul. He planted that church. He started it. 
He, he spent three years in the desert being instructed by Jesus himself in a resurrected state. And, and they're saying, Paul's nothing. Paul's a jerk. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And they're just running him down. And it's causing a division in the church. Okay? So he sends them this letter. And he just reads them the riot act, apparently, in this letter. And we know that from 2 Corinthians. Um, then because Paul recommends some kind of disciplinary course of, of action against this guy. And then in late 56 AD, Paul sends the letter that we now know as 2 Corinthians. Okay? So that's the background. And you just need to understand that timeline because it's going to make a difference in how you understand what Paul is saying in this letter. Okay? And it will help you understand also the importance of forgiveness. And Paul's forgiveness of this person that he knew personally, this might very well have been someone that Paul himself evangelized, baptized, and discipled. The person who hurt him was probably a leader in this church that Paul himself had influence in his life. And the guy betrays him and stabs him in the back. He hurts him. He publicly runs him down. Some of you have had people, you know, pick up the phone or get on social media and talk bad things about you <laughs> and say things that aren't true. So what do you do with that? Someone you know, someone maybe you used to trust. <laughs> what do you do with that? See, here's the thing. This forgiveness matters for the mission of the church. Here's the big idea this morning. The most effective way for, you to event, for, for someone to eventually experience forgiveness from Jesus is to receive forgiveness from you. The most effective way for someone to eventually experience forgiveness from Jesus is to receive forgiveness from you. If you want to be successful handing off your faith, one of the best ways to do that is to allow the forgiveness that Jesus has shown you to overflow out of your life. How do you do that? Well, I think Paul lays out a four-step process in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let's look at that together. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 5. He says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. Now I know that to some of you, Paul's situation here may seem pretty far removed from your everyday experience. But I believe that Paul lays out a four-step process to practice what I'm calling evangelistic forgiveness. Here's what it looks like. Step one, focus on restoration, not revenge. Focus on restoration, not revenge. The most shocking thing about this text is Paul's assertion in verse 5 through 8 that the man's offense, which seemed like it was primarily directed at Paul, was actually an offense against the whole church. It's a little bit distressing, church, to read Paul's perspective that an offense against one member of the body is an offense against the whole body. 
like, whoa, I better watch my life. Wow. I mean, that's what Paul's saying here. (laughs) In fact, in his letter of tears that we don't have, Paul probably recommended some course of discipline. The word's translated punishment in verse 6. Some course of discipline against this individual. We assume it's a guy. And they did it. They followed that to the letter. The Paul, Paul says, I, I'm just, I wanted to see if you'd be obedient to this. They did it. So much so that Paul has to tell them, whoa, hey, whoa, that man, just chill, okay? He, he's telling them, this is about restoration, not revenge. This is about renewal, not vengeance. You gotta focus on restoration. If you wanna forgive someone, the first thing you have to do is focus on restoration of the relationship of the person, not on revenge. Paul's, Paul, Paul knew that his letter of tears, the one that we don't have, one of them it grieved them. He knew that exercising discipline on this sinful person in their midst caused them grief. Now that's a significant word. The word there means a state of sadness, but it's got a very specific usage by Paul. The word appears 26 times in the New Testament, 12 of them are in 2 Corinthians. Nearly, almost half of the uses of this word in the whole Bible are in this one letter. And the word means basically godly sorrow. It's it's conviction over sin. It's this idea that that it's, it's not sadness over the troubles and travails of this world. It's not sadness over the hurts and struggles of our friends so much as it is sadness over, wow, something not in God's plan has happened. This is bad. And maybe I is the one who did it. Paul will use the same letter, same word later in, in, in the letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, when he writes, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. This is grief or sorrow over sin. Now, we don't have time today to get into the whole issue of church discipline. I don't think we need to, at least not today. Because what Paul is urging here is a focus on restoration, not revenge. Paul is choosing not to get revenge against the guy that hurt him. He's focused on on restoring that man to fellowship in the church, and maybe, depending on how you understand certain passages in the New Testament, restoring his relationship to Jesus, his salvation. That's his focus here. You've got to be more focused on restoration than revenge if you want to forgive anybody you just you you don't if you don't do that if you're worried about revenge forgiveness is just out of the question heard about two little brothers harry and james they were fighting because one of them had hit the other with a toy they were playing and they were just playing kind of rough little boys do i've got little boys i know how that goes and the toy got loose pow and hit one and and Tears and angry words followed. <laughs> and the accusations and, and stuff was still flying at bedtime. And mom put him to bed. And she said, now boys, you need to stop. What would happen if one of you died in the night and, and you weren't able to forgive the other? <laughs> Harry said, okay, I'll forgive him. But if we're both alive in the morning, he better look out. It's easy, and sadly, it's natural for us to want revenge. And even then, I've seen people say, and maybe you've heard this, you've heard someone say, the best revenge is just to forgive the person who hurt you. Yeah, kind of. But that's the wrong focus. (laughs) 
It's the wrong focus. The best thing to do is to extend forgiveness. The best thing to extend forgiveness is to stay focused on restoration. How do I restore this person to a right relationship with God? How do I restore our relationship with one another? Now, some of you watching online might be kind of doing two things at once. You might be having us on the iPad and scrolling Facebook on your phone. I don't know if you know this or not, but we preachers, for those of you who wear glasses, we can see the blue line reflected in your glasses. Like, we know. I'm just saying. You might be doing it here in the room, too. Like, he's live, but I'm... I know I'm being fact-checked live. I get that, okay? And you're scrolling through the feed, and you see, ah, that, oh, that person hurt me. That person hurt me. And you want revenge. What could I do? How could I turn this around on them? It's the wrong focus, man. Here's, and here's why. Revenge won't win anyone to Jesus. We have a mission. Go make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. You think you can do that mission while you're trying to get revenge? Nope. Nope. Not going to happen. That handoff is impossible. So I would, in fact, I would contend that many, many people who, who have not become Christians did not choose to follow Jesus because some follower of Jesus that they knew was more interested in scoring points in a debate or coming up with a snappy comeback to an insult than they were in restoring their relationship with that person that they know. You got to focus on restoration. So how do you do that? Well, that's step two. Don't own the offense. Don't own the offense. And I know we're in a football theme series, so notice how I pronounce that. Not offense, <laughs> offense. Look back at verse 10. Paul says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ. <laughs> Paul's telling the church, you should forgive this guy. He repented, you should forgive him. And if you forgive him, I forgive him, if there was anything to forgive. If, if, you know there was. What this guy did literally delayed the sending of a book in the Bible. He stabbed the guy who started the church he was a part of in the back metaphorically. It may have been the guy who baptized him. If there's anything to forgive... Paul's saying, I'm not going to own this. <laughs> I'm not going to take it personally, even though it was against me. Paul says, forgive him. Now, the word forgive here is not the normal word for forgiveness in the New Testament. The normal word is a word that means to release, to let go. It's the word that's used in Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, that God lets go of them. He releases them. He doesn't hang on to them. That's not the word that he uses here. The word he uses here is a form of the word normally translated grace. He's saying show grace to this person. Give, give this guy grace, an extra measure of grace. Paul's showing the guy grace. He's not taking the offense personally, even though he could. He's not owning it. Carl Menninger, the famous psychiatrist, reportedly said that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out the next day. My preaching mentor, one of them, uh, Wayne Shaw, used to say that there's nothing as therapeutic as having all your sins washed away. 
I mean, she's not a theologian, but Elsa said, let it go, let it go. <laughs> Church, talk to me. Who decides whether or not you're offended? You do. So who can decide to let it go? You. No one has ever, in your whole life, no one has ever offended you against your will. That's never happened. And so you can decide to not own it. That's your call. You get to be the referee on that one. So the, step, the second step in this evangelistic forgiveness process is don't own the offense. What enables you to do that? Here's step three. You submit to the example of Jesus. Submit to the example of Jesus. Ultimately, in verse 10, Paul appeals to the example of Jesus. He urges the Corinthians to forgive and restore this erring brother in the sight of Christ, he says. He's appealing to Jesus' example. It's basically the same thing that he said back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Look at this. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul reminds the church that all this is being done in the sight of Christ. That Jesus is the ultimate standard of forgiveness. And some of you might be sitting there thinking, but Casey, you don't know what they did to me. You're right. I don't. He does. He knows exactly what they did to you. And if I understand my Bible right... He died to forgive that sin too. That that is also washed away by the shed blood of Jesus. If you're going to claim his forgiveness for yourself, you don't have the right to not forgive someone who seeks it from you. You should follow the example of the one you call Lord, Master, your King and God. He set the example, and we need to submit to that example. In one of my favorite Calvin and Hobbes comic strips, Calvin turns to Hobbes and says, I feel bad that I called Susie names and, and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did that. And, Hobbes says, maybe you should apologize to her. Calvin thinks about it for a second, and he says, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. <laughs> and I know, I get it. This is kind of a well-duh application. No one's sins against you remotely compare to your sins against him. And he forgave you, and that's enough. We should submit to his example, because if you don't, you just might get swindled by Satan. That's step four. Don't get swindled by Satan. <laughs> Verse 11 really makes me laugh. It just, it just tickles me. It's, it's funny to me. He says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. <laughs> really? Really, Paul? Because <laughs> from where I stand, by and large, the church seems to often be unaware of Satan's schemes. Huh? 
You think, oh, that's ridiculous. And then I sin. Doggone it, he swindled me again. I fell for it. I just took the bait hook, line, and sinker. See, that's what the word outwit in the text means. That Satan might not outwit us. It means to cheat. It means to swindle. It means to take advantage of someone. And here's the thing, church. If you choose not to forgive, if you choose not to be forgiving, you are getting swindled by your enemy. You are getting cheated out of your inheritance as a child of God by Satan. Don't let him do that. Don't let him do that. Choosing not to forgive is to fall victim to Satan's millennia-long plan to cheat the human race out of our inheritance as God's children. Practicing forgiveness, though, gives us a victory over Satan's schemes. (laughs) Next Sunday is probably my fifth or sixth favorite day of the year. September 22nd is Hobbit Day. (laughs) That's the day in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings that both Bilbo and Frodo start their journey. That's the day that is celebrated uh, by ringers like me, Lord of the Rings fans. uh, As Some of you are like, okay, he is a nerd. He might know stuff about sports, but he is a nerd. so, you know, I mean, there's the, that's, I start my annual rereading of the Lord of the Rings every year the next Sunday. Um, so it's on my mind right now because it's just a week away. But I want to tell you this story because I think it illustrates this perfectly. In the final book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King, the, the traitor Saruman, uh, who was once a great and good wizard who turned to evil, has traveled to the home of the hobbits, the Shire, to wreak havoc on, on, on them as revenge for their part in vanquishing him. The hobbits stand up to him. He's with this servant, Worm Tongue. This is a great painting by Ted Naismith, who's one of the great illustrators of Tolkien's works. When the hobbits stand up to him, they force him out of his hiding spot, and then we read this. Sauron turned to go, and Worm Tongue shuffled after him. But even as Sauron passed close to Frodo, a knife flashed in his hand, and he stabbed swiftly. The blade turned on the hidden mail coat. Frodo had armor under his clothes. And a dozen hobbits, led by Sam, leapt forward with a cry and flung the villain to the ground. Sam drew his sword. No, Sam, said Frodo. Do not kill him even now, for he's not hurt me. And in any case, I do not wish him to be slain in this evil mood. He was great once, of a noble kind, that we should not dare to raise our hands against. He has fallen, and his cure is beyond us, but I would still spare him in the hope that he may find it. Saruman rose to his feet and stared at Frodo. There was a strange look in his eyes of mingled wonder and respect and hatred. You have grown, halfling, he said. Yes, you have grown very much. You are wise and cruel. You have robbed my revenge of its sweetness, and now I must go hence in bitterness, in debt to your mercy. That's what I mean when I say don't get swindled by Satan. When you choose to forgive, when you choose to, to, or when you choose not to forgive, rather, when you choose to take revenge, when you choose to own the offense, when you choose to reject Jesus' example by accepting but not giving forgiveness, you are getting swindled and taken advantage of by your enemy. 
when you let go of your hurts, when you forgive, you are engaged in actively tearing down the kingdom of Satan and building up the kingdom of God. When you forgive, you make it possible for others who are far from God to see through Satan's lies and find Jesus. That's evangelistic forgiveness. That's how you hand off your faith. Some of you might have a face in mind right now. Some of you right now might be thinking of somebody you know who has hurt you. Someone who's been unfair to you. Can I, example, can I exhort you to spend some time in silence? We're, I'm going to give you 60 seconds. I'll watch the clock. A prayer. To spend some time praying for this person, praying for their salvation, and, and processing your own hurt. So bow your heads, close your eyes, and go to the Father. Almighty God, I have no right to hold against a former friend his offense. And Lord, it happened 14 years ago last month. And I'm, I'm still struggling with it, Jesus. And yet I happily claim your forgiveness of my sin. So, Father, I repent of my struggle to let go of that injury. Knowing that that's what you did for me. Knowing that my evangelistic effectiveness is minimized. And I bet there are others here who feel the same way. Help us, Jesus. Help us be a community of people that is known as those who forgive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now some of you may be wondering if this passage is about forgiving somebody in the church. How does this help us practice evangelistic forgiveness? Good question. Here's the answer. If we're supposed to forgive erring brothers and sisters who hurt us and ought to know better, how much more should we show forgiveness to those who are far from God. Because if they experience it from you, maybe, just maybe, they'll want more. They'll want to experience it from Jesus and have all their sins washed away. 
See, Paul will go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here is that ministry, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God is using you and your forgiveness to make an appeal to the world to come to Jesus. And why? Because of this verse. I love this. You need to memorize this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. On the cross, Jesus of Nazareth became the physical embodiment of your sin so that God could pour out all his wrath, all his punishment on sin for all time on his son. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he's dealing with your guilt. My sin was washed away that day. God made his own son the physical embodiment of sin so he could pour out all of his wrath for all sin for all time on Jesus so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is real forgiveness for those who repent and surrender to Jesus. He really will take away the guilt and shame of your sin and put forgiveness and grace in their place. Do you know that? Do you possess that church? Here's what we have to get our heads around. The message, excuse me, the measure to which we become a community of forgiveness, where we reflect what Jesus has done in us to the world around us, will largely determine how effective we are at handing off our faith to the whole community. Did you get the message today? The most effective way for someone to eventually experience forgiveness from Jesus is to receive forgiveness from you. That's how you hand off your faith. So maybe you're here this morning and you need forgiveness. We're going to have a time of response, a time for you to to make a decision to follow the Lord. If you've never been baptized, if you've never surrendered your life to him as Savior and Lord, he has, when he died on the cross, he was to forgive your sin. What he asks is for you to return that life back to him. (laughs) And so as we sing, I would encourage you to come to the front. We'll have people here ready to receive you. Maybe you're here this morning and and you've got an offense that you're holding on to, that you need to forgive someone. And so we'll have people down here ready to pray with you. And you may just need to spend some time in prayer. You might have some questions still, want to talk to someone. You can go to the next step room. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to sing together and you respond as God leads you today.